This is WCPO FM 1051 on your FM dial, Cincinnati, Ohio. WKRC, Cincinnati. This is the nation station. Hi again, everyone, and welcome to the Cincy Shirts Podcast. It's episode 176. Today on our show, Lisa Sweezy from the Venthaven Museum. I never know the story till I get the dummy. So the three that came today were part of an estate uh, for ventriloquists who passed away last year. And his widow, wanted he wanted them all to come here, and he was very familiar with the museum. I get them when people are switching characters. Let's say you're a paraprofessional and you're doing ventriloquism for a while, and then you're successful enough that you want to get a better dummy. The Venhaven Museum is a ventriloquism museum, and it's located in Fort Mitchell. Lisa is the curator, and she tells us how the museum got started. We talk a little bit of history about ventriloquism, the importance of not being a ventriloquist in her job, and more. If you've been liking the podcast, you can help support it via PayPal or Venmo. Simply use podcast at cincyshirts.com and chip in whatever you feel is fair. Also, be sure to listen for that special promo code for 20% off near the end of the episode. Now let's talk to Lisa Sweezy about the Venhaven Museum. Cincinnati. We usually like to start is uh, getting your Cincinnati bona fides in. Are you from Cincinnati originally or the tri-state? I am. Um, I was an army brat. And I moved to the Cincinnati area um, to go to UC in 1983, and I've been here since then. Okay. Where did you move from? Where was the last place you lived before here? The last place I lived before here was Oxford, Mississippi, but I was actually born in Massachusetts, so okay. I've been all around. All right. And did you have an interest in ventriloquism going growing up? Not at all. Uh, I, and I'm currently not a ventriloquist. I don't do any ventriloquism. I was a high school math teacher before I got this job in 2000, oh. and um, I became drawn to I was introduced to the museum through um, a woman I was teaching with, a co-worker, and she had been the curator for a period of time and had grown up around the museum because her father was the attorney for it. And so I came over to just see it and was just flabbergasted by it. So I fell in love with the place and started working here in 2000. Aha. Uh-huh. So what is your position there now? What, what do you do exactly? I am the curator, and then I'm also a member of the board of directors. Okay. And so did you become a fan of ventriloquism then? Like, were you just interested in the collection and thought, well, what's all this all about and what's behind this? How, how did that develop? Well, there was a little bit of both. When I, when I came here the very first time, the only, the only ventriloquists that I could reference readily were Edgar Bergen with Charlotte McCarthy, yes. Sherry Lewis and Lambchop, oh, I forgot and about Willie them. Tyler. Willie Tyler and Lester. Those were the three that were kind of in my consciousness at, from my age. I'm 55 now, and that kind of fits with my age group. Okay, we're the same age. So, pardon? We're the same age. Oh, we're the same age? Group? Yeah. Uh, so that I, I had a, I knew what ventriloquism was. I knew it had been, uh, you know, a mainstay in vaudeville and on early television, but I certainly wasn't up to date with it or following it in any way at all. Um, so I, I would say my primary attraction to the museum was the fact that the founder, W.S. Berger, would spend 40 years avidly collecting one thing. And I just thought that was an extraordinary accomplishment. 
uh, he just did, it's, it's an amazing collection here. So I just had an appreciation for the work he had put into leaving a legacy like this. So let's, going back here to when you were saying the, uh, the first ventriloquist you could name, I would probably be right there with you. I've always thought Sherry Lewis as more of a puppeteer. Sure. A lot of people associate uh, the soft puppets like Lamb Chop with just strict puppeteering. But now, Sherry Lewis is one of the most phenomenal ventriloquists ever. All it takes to be a ventriloquist is that the puppeteer is present mm-hmm. and not moving their lips, creating the illusion of two voices where there's just one person. So uh, she's definitely, uh, anyone, any ventriloquist is a puppeteer, but not every puppeteer is a ventriloquist. Aha. Uh-huh. And then the other ones I was going to mention uh, that I would probably be able to name after, at that point anyway, growing up from uh, Edgar Bergen and Charlie McCarthy, would be uh, Jay Johnson and Bob. Although Bob is not... Yay! Bob, I'm so Bob, glad you said that. Bob's not his but original it, name, I don't think. Jay Johnson, the... the the puppet, the, or the, or the, I'm not sure what the terminology is, the ventriloquist doll? is What's, what's the proper terminology? Uh, typically in Europe, the most common word to use is doll. Okay. But in the United States, doll typically means child's doll without a moving Right, doll. right. So most of the time, I'm going to say the words dummy and puppet. Puppet meaning soft hand puppet, like lamb chop, where Sherry's hand was all the way up in the mouth. And then I'll use dummy uh, for the ones where that have a head stick, a head control. Okay. So with... Um, with Jay, who is just one of the most wonderful people you could ever meet on the street, um, yeah, he has uh, several other dummies that he performed with, and some puppets, too. I thought, did he create, was Bob specifically for Soap? Because I seem to recall him uh, seeing video of him before Soap with a doll that looked a lot like Bob, but it wasn't named Bob. They just named him, because they were actually Chuck and Bob were their characters in Soap. And so <laughs> he, right. it became known as Jay Johnson and Bob. Cause I don't, yeah, is it was Bob, did he have Bob before soap, or was did Bob get named because... No, Bob was created for soap. Okay, cool. Yeah, so his his main characters were not, uh, were not, uh, <laughs> uh, uh, I'll go with uh, sarcastic enough. <laughs> okay. They yeah. wanted, they wanted Bob to be very cutting. Yes, so he was. So if you, um, there's a whole, Jay Johnson won a Tony Award in 2007 for his Broadway show, The Two and Only. Oh. And in that, in that show you hear the whole explanation, um, which is a, a, an incredible, incredible story. And I don't want to take anything away from it because the way Jay tells it is absolutely perfect. And I would, I would okay. pitch it if I told you the story of how <laughs> Bob came into being. But um, yeah, Jay is uh, he's a remarkable talent. He's on a member of our board of advisors, and he's oh, been okay. a good friend for years and years. Oh, yeah, yeah. So, I wasn't allowed to watch Soap because I was in middle school, so I wasn't allowed to watch that show. Uh, uh, I, so. well, we're, again, we're the same age, and I was allowed to watch. My brother and I so loved it. There you go. I don't know. We love it. I, I don't think my mom knew exactly what Soap was about. She just right. knew that it was a parody of soap operas. And she thought regular soap operas were silly. So she said, well, this is harmless. I saw, so she never watched it with us. So I don't yeah, think she really knew. It was a little bit risque, yeah. I guess, you know. And, of course, now it's nothing. <laughs> now it's nothing. <laughs> exactly. But, it, yeah, it's a great show. Um, Bob is, or uh, Jay, like I said, he was just an extraordinary person. Or he still oh, is. yeah, I mean, yeah. It's a, it's it's a, a great, new, uh, it's a, well, I, and I guess as all those acts kind of are, it's a good, you know, straight man punchline uh, dynamic. 
uh, that yeah. he encapsulates in that. And the, the, what made what possessed them to add a ventriloquist to this cast, I don't know, but it just works so well, not just as a standalone thing with Jay's talent, but interacting with the other characters. It's just one more crazy element in this show. That, folks, if you haven't seen it, it's repeated on one of the free stations we get in the area. I'll try to tell you on the other side which one it is, but uh, you you need to watch Soap. <laughs> Yeah, and the the um, I, I think I think the two and only is on Netflix. I don't know where it's streaming okay. now, but it's great too. So in there, yeah, yeah you yeah. have you have him with Bob, but then his main um, character Squeaky was his favorite, or still is his favorite. Okay, um, and then I've seen him with Darwin, which is a puppet, and Amigo, and Spalding, and all of those. Yeah, Nethernor is my favorite personally. Yeah. That's the Vulture. But, As I um, recall, seeing him after Soap was on, like on the Tonight Show, I. Th- think he had only i only ever saw him with bob which makes sense because you know for that audience and that's right that the fact he was on a hit tv show with that doll would would make sense exactly. interesting exactly. so there's a big convention every year right yes we've had a convention since 1975 and it started as a way to generate funds to sustain the operation of the museum and it's grown and grown and grown we get about 500 to 600 ventriloquists from around the world each year and it is more like a family reunion than a than a standard convention. It's all kinds of learning in the daytime, workshops and uh, amateur uh, stage time kind of thing, and oh, oh, junior event university, all kinds of things. And then in the evenings, for the most part, there are shows, and they have we have paraprofessional shows, just amateur shows, and then the the professional shows as well. And everybody comes. It's uh, the only convention for ventriloquists, so. People come from, I think we had 13 countries here in 2019. Yeah, I found out about it quite by accident, and I just remembered this week when I was trying to find out, you know, uh, another guest we could book for the show, uh, because I've interviewed Jeff Dunham a couple of times uh, for City Beat. Yeah, and uh, Jeff's a great guy. There's some controversy there, elephant in the room, but um, it couldn't be a nicer guy. Uh, and he was oh, the one that no, told me all about it. Sweetheart. Yeah, yeah. And he, uh, and he was telling me all about it. And I'm like, I didn't, and he goes, yeah, and there's a museum there. I'm like, really? And I'd already lived here. God, this is probably in the early aughts when I first interviewed him for City Beat because before I had my podcast. Otherwise, he would have been on that too. But, uh, <laughs> so that's the early aughts. I'd already lived here like 15, 16 years and I had no idea that anything like this existed. And he goes, oh yeah, I come there every year and I, and then I coordinate it with doing, you know, headlining. I think it was headlining the, um, arena at NKU and, Mm-hmm. He done the Taft, yeah, yeah, and he he does that every, and I presume he'll do it again. I I presume twenty twenty one is out, but twenty twenty two will things be back? You think? Well, we are, we are having a convention, and Jeff will be here. Okay, but there's not a show as far as I know. I think he's in Louisville the night before he's coming here. So okay. he does plan shows locally around the convention. Oh, there you go. Okay, so he still does that. Great. Mm-hmm. Uh, good for him. So let's take a, a, a step back here because you were talking about kind of puppetry and ventriloquism. How far back does the art form go? And it, it, it seems to me it's kind of like country and R and B, where they kind of are together and they kind of split and, or merge and form rock and roll and things. Like that. How is are puppetry and ventriloquism related? You know, kind of where do they start and how do they kind of move forward? Sure. Okay. So with ventriloquism specifically, in its ancient history, and by that I mean. Um, prior to the 18th century. There, the ventriloquists were more aligned with uh, magicians. So they would uh, tell people, God gave me two sets of vocal cords and I can speak for the dead. 
and all that kind of stuff. And they would have conduct seances and things like that and go into a trance and the second voice would emerge. And it was always, you know, it always was to benefit the ventriloquist. They didn't want competition, so they would tell people, don't try this at home. And they would use their abilities, you know, basically as charlatans to rip people off by pretending to conjure the dead. That was extremely common. And then in 1772, a, a Frenchman wrote a book that was basically the big expose, which was saying to people, you know, there's nothing, there's nothing supernatural going on here. This is sound substitution and misdirection. Stop giving them your money. Stop believing that they have any kind of supernatural talent. And that kind of put the kibosh on the sorcery type spooky element and then brought it into the realm of parlor tricks. So you would then pay to have the fake thing go on. But you, at least you knew, you know, what you were seeing. Um, and then the voice casting would go to objects, boxes, uh, under the floor, you know, coming from the heavens, whatever. Still no dummy. And it wasn't really until the early 19th century that you see the emergence of the use of puppets with regard to ventriloquism. So, the, the, and then one of those initial trends was to use a family, a set of dummies. You might have six or seven dummies and move from one to the other, demonstrating different voices, different personalities, the whole point of which was to impress people with your ventriloquism skills. After that happened, a British ventriloquist named Fred Russell kind of modernized and normalized the idea of an individual ventriloquist with an individual dummy it was very portable. It was very good for vaudeville era performers and Chautauqua to have the portability of I'll put my dummy in a suitcase, I got my clothes in a suitcase, I can get out of town and go to the next theater, the next town, rather than have the elaborate stage set. Then you move into Edgar Bergen. When you get by the time you get to Edgar Bergen in the early 20th century, that is when you see the emergence of actual character development. Again, prior to Bergen. The ventriloquists were still trying to impress you with the skill of ventriloquism alone. My mouth doesn't move. This dummy looks like he's talking. This is a really great illusion, blah, blah, blah. But the acts themselves are not particularly well-developed or particularly funny. They might have jokes in them and that type of thing, but there's just not a lot of nuance or subtlety to those pieces. When you get to Bergen and he spends all this time Getting people to believe in Charlie McCarthy, that that is a, a boy with his own attitude, his own personality, his own likes and dislikes that are separate from Bergen's, you end up with the rise of this character in the American consciousness that was so predominant that people, you know, of all ages would like him. And Bergen just capitalized on that. There were so many people that, who's, who's still today, who come here to the museum and they will not know Edgar Bergen's name. They will know Charlie McCarthy's name. And that is exactly what Bergen was doing, was creating, it, was, it turned into character development. So that's kind of the, those are kind of the trends in ventriloquism since the, the mid-17th uh, yeah, mid century or so. And I guess another thing that kind of helped make that separation is that uh, there's another character that Edgar Bergen does, it's Mortimer Snurd. So right, which is essentially Goofy. Walt yes. Disney's Goofy. The parallel design of those is not coincidental. Um, Bergen lived next door to Disney, to Walt Disney. They were neighbors. And Disney, uh, Walt Disney gave Bergen advice about merchandising, advice about copywriting, advice about character development. But if you see, if, if you look up an image of the original Goofy and original Mortimer Snurd and just look at them side by side, it's the same face, it's the same person. 
Ah, interesting. So there's a lot of collaboration going there. I'm, I'm not I'm not crediting either man with you know stepping on the other's toes. I'm just saying that they were friends and likely yeah. influenced one another. Oh yeah, but that, yeah. Mortimer is the sweetest character, isn't he? Yes, I love Mortimer a lot. I, I, I almost maybe prefer him to uh, his, his, his simplistic ways. I guess I prefer to. to right, uh, Bergen did. Yeah. Bergen liked Mortimer. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, so where does Danny O'Day come from? I remember being a kid and having a Danny O'Day doll that my mom. You did? Do you still have it? No, it was actually my brother's, and it was from the oh. Sears from the Sears catalog. Yes, from yeah, the Sears catalog. Yeah, and what, what was was that just like? Was it a character of somebody's? I seem to have some recollection of that, but I'm not sure. Yes, yes. Danny O'Day, the main Danny O'Day, was the primary character that belonged to Jimmy Nelson. Aha. And Jimmy had another primary character named Farfel the Dog. They were on the Ed Sullivan Show, Texaco Theater, all kinds of television shows. But what he's most well-known for is that Jimmy, Danny, and Farfel were the the spokespeople, (laughs) spokes characters, for Nestle's Quick from 1955 to 1965. Jimmy was also on our board, just as Bergen was and, J- and Jay is. Uh, Jimmy is the nicest person I've ever met in real life. He was just the most wonderful person. He just passed away uh, about 18 months ago. So, oh. yeah, he was a wonderful person. I, uh, I may be mixing up memories here. I think he was also the spokesperson for a, a sandwich shop up in Cleveland called Mr. Hero. Uh, he and Farfel particularly. I'm going to have to look that up, though, because I Yeah, I don't know that. And um, we had our tribute, uh, our convention in 2011 was all about Jimmy Nelson's 70 years in show business. And one of our uh, directors, who is also the leading historian on ventriloquism history, Tom Latchaw, spent hours and hours and hours and hours with Jimmy, making sure that his biography was written and was as complete as it could be. So... That tidbit may be in there, um, but I don't know that, so I'd have to I'd have to pull the biography and read it again. I can probably um, find it on you. There's probably an old Mr. Hero commercial somewhere, but I seem to remember that, or maybe I'm just mixing. Maybe they were a spokesman for something else, and the Mr. Hero commercial came on right after, and my brain has since mixed them together. <laughs> right, I don't I don't trust my memory a whole lot. Yeah, exactly. Let me find the source on that again. <laughs> um, and then another one I just thought of as we were talking, Senior Wenches. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, Senior Wences was on the um, Ed Sullivan Show 47 times. He lived in an apartment building uh, next door to Ed Sullivan Theater. And if you go up there, even today, where Ed Sullivan Theater is where uh, David Letterman was and all that. Mm-hmm. There's an alleyway that the city renamed Senior Wences Way. Oh, I didn't so, know that. How yeah. about that? So he was a neighbor there, and the legend is that... <laughs> That if Ed Sullivan was, you know, had the axe, here come all the axe in for the day, that if Ed Sullivan didn't like the look of somebody, that he would call Senior Wences and say, you're on today, and walk over and do his show. Um, I'm not sure that that ever really happened, but I've heard that story so many times. I I believe that because um, (laughs) I think that's a common practice in talk shows because the the gag on Letterman's old show before he was actually in the Ed Sullivan Theater back in the NBC days was Tony Randall lived right in Manhattan, and he and Dave were really good friends. And if, if, a, if a guest couldn't make it or if the show was going to run uh, over or short or something like that and they needed somebody, they would call Tony Randall, and it was it kind of became a gag. And Tony would show up and go like, oh, who didn't show up or who didn't? So, yeah, I think that's actually a common, even to this day, that they have go-to guests that if someone doesn't show up, uh, they can they can call this person and they will come in and, and do the show. So that's perfectly believable. Yeah. 
Yeah. Um, if my TV history isn't failing me. Oh, and people who may know Senior Wenches, he's one of those people that is no, you know him even though you don't know him. Because if you ever see anybody uh, open up a box and make a little voice, Robin Williams did this a lot too. It opened that's the right. box. In fact, he does it in Aladdin. Uh, Sadai, that's, right. that's, that's Senior Wenches, yeah. everybody. Yeah. So. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Yep. So it's funny that that little bit of Senior Wenches lives on to this day. Um, so what is the oldest ventriloquist doll in the collection? Is Well, we have several that date to roughly the same age, uh, mid uh, mid-19th century, but we only have one that I can assert a production date on, and that is a Civil War-era child doll made by a German doll company called the, the Greiner Doll Company. It would have just had a solid, uh, not a solid head, but a, the mouth would have been connected as part yeah. of the head, and... Someone cut that and made it into a ventriloquial piece where the mouth oh. works. <clears throat> so we know that that was produced based on the stamps on it um, between 1861 and 1863. So we assert that one for sure. There are others that we have, another handful of, let's say, four or five, that are roughly that same age. But when Mr. Berger was getting, was building the collection, he was buying them from all over the world. And, and so people would inflate the details, you know, to sell, to, to ask a higher price for pieces. So uh-huh. he has pieces that he said, you know, that were written down as made in 1850 or whatever, and it's like, ah, uh, that's highly unlikely, you know. There's, so we're, we kind of take all of, a lot of that with a grain of salt. Um, but so 1861 to 1863 would be our uh, oldest piece that I could actually assert. So, and as you were saying before, ventriloquism starts more as a uh, a skill, and it's, it's what we call throwing your voice, is another term for it. And then it goes into what we kind of know as what we would say modern ventriloquism involving the use of a, a character, basically. That'd be a good assessment. Yes, absolutely. Mm-hmm. Okay, and so, and it's always seemed it's not, never been like. I guess a huge thing, like everybody and their brother is doing stand-up comedy, and with all these singing shows, everyone is singing. But it doesn't seem like we have a lot of ventriloquists, but as we go through, at least from the 50s on, you have Edgar Bergen, you have Senior Wenches, and then you have Jay Johnson, and you have um, uh, uh, Cherry Lewis, and, and, and then you have Lester, and you have all, but it's all, there's only like one or two, and of course Jeff Dunham now is still doing it, and Terry Fader, who I've also interviewed. Um, all kind of just going, there's never really like a huge, there's never a, a ventriloquism boom, I guess, or, or is there? Well, I would say that ventriloquism has certainly had its ebbs and tides. Um, it was at a very high watermark in vaudeville, and then Bergen carried that through uh, the Depression to film and early television and radio. And then you've got, once then you get into the Ed Sullivan era itself, and it was incredibly common on the Ed Sullivan show. So even though like, for example, that you named Senior Wences, that was also Ricky Lane, there was also Clifford Guest. There was tons of ventriloquists who were on that show. It was common as dirt. When Ed Sullivan went off the air, I think it was 1970, 71, um, I could be off a year there, but when that went off the air, there just really wasn't a television show featuring variety acts of any type. You moved right into sketch comedy. And then after sketch comedy, like Carol Burnett, then you move into sitcoms. And so you're talking about, you know, 25, 30 years go by where 
there, there's not that public consciousness. You'd have to seek out these entertainers or see them um, by chance, you know, on a cruise ship or in a nightclub or something like that. So it was a tough time for variety acts of all types until America's Got Talent. And that show, plus Jeff Dunham's gazillion hours, you know, building his career, those two things just kind of exploded it back into the public consciousness. So, um, you know, Jeff was doing, Jeff never wanted to be anything but a controller person. He was working his way, working his way, working his way. And he was, when I met him in 2000, he was doing um, comedy clubs and things like that, 300 seats, 400 seats. And, of course, now he sells out arenas. He's got worldwide tours. He's, you know, just it's crazy to have watched him just explode in popularity. Um, so he's one reason that ventriloquism is, is is more in the public consciousness. And then America's Got Talent was a big deal because uh, Terry Fader won it the second year, and then Paul Zerden won it a few years ago, and then Darcy Lynn Farmer won it in 2017. So we've had three ventriloquists win that show, and that has also helped with, people seeing it and going, oh, it's, you know, it's more common again. Actually, <laughs> this actually happened. This is not a lie. Um, Darcy Lynn won the show as 12 years old in, in 2017. She won America's Got Talent. So that following season for my tourism, all kinds of little girls come out of the woodwork with their puppets. They're going to be like Darcy Lynn. And I had a tour where I was talking about how great Darcy was and let's look at her stuff and all this. And one girl said, she's not just doing a puppet. She's not even moving her mouth as if Darcy had invented ventriloquism. <laughs> it was the most precious thing because I thought, you know, it's new to you. It's yeah. new to you. And so it, it it brought a lot of children, you know, that, that uh, 8 to 12-year-old, a lot more kids came to the convention rather than having, let's say, a couple dozen kids in that age range. We went up to about 50 kids in that age range. So I think America's Got Talent has done a lot for any variety performer, whether it's juggling or mining or, or being a unicyclist or whatever you want to do for fun. There's, again, a, a draw for that and an audience for that. So I think it's been a really great show for diverse performers, including ventriloquists. Yeah, it's funny. It's one of those things that you don't know you like it until you see it on TV and you're like, oh, yeah, I really like this a lot. Right, and it's so, so difficult. I mean, the truth about being a ventriloquist is uh, it's like playing a musical instrument. You have to be terrible first. Yeah. And you have to be willing to get through to practice, to learn, to take lessons. You have to be willing to get through the part where no one is being entertained, where, you know, uh, both my kids grew up and played an instrument. My one is, uh, my younger daughter stuck with it and she's got a degree from you, from the, from, the CCM and she's going to graduate school for French horn performance. But when she was in the fifth grade, I could barely stand to hear it. <laughs> so, <laughs> you know, you have to be, you have to be bad first. You have to be willing to learn. And so I think with ventriloquism, people don't realize what is actually going on that you've got. Yes, you've got to keep your lips still. Yes, you have to make a second voice, but you also have to have a character there. You have to de deliver a monologue as if it's a dialogue. You have to react to the thing that you just said as if the other character said it. You have to be funny. You have to have great timing. You have to look great on stage. You have to have great material. There's so much that's going into when you see somebody like Jeff perform the thousands and thousands and thousands and thousands and thousands of hours that have gone in to that show 
you know, in, in all dimensions. It's just extraordinary when you really give the person credit. That's a really good point. Uh, like you're saying, it just, there's more to it than just the raw skill. Even, even if you can perfect the, you know, the not seeing the lips move, you have to create a character. Like you're saying, that's one skill set. You have to understand setups and punchline, like you do just in stand-up comedy or sketch comedy. That's a whole other skill set. And then you have to bring all these skills together. And I guess like you're saying, people with like Jeff and, and Terry and all those people, they they make the great ones make it look easy, I suppose. And it's only that's come exactly that. right. Just yeah. like the great guitarists make it look easy. True, true. And, you and only... it's brutal. It's incredibly difficult. I mean, most people give up playing a, a new instrument within a matter of months. It's just too difficult. And that's yeah. the same way with something like this. It's, it's got to be like any hobby or anything you want to learn, whether it's knitting or tap dancing. It doesn't matter. You have to be bad first. That's true. There's all, all these other intricacies that you don't know about. Like when, for example, podcasting, what we're doing right now, I teach a class to kids, and the first thing they understand is podcasting involves very little recording. And the one parent was some, a, a parent will usually stay behind and kind of help me out. And the guy at the end of the class is like, what are they going to get to record? Because I gave, I do a little lecture first, and I teach them about editing. And it's a, a, podcasting is mostly writing. It's, it's not recording, oddly. And I told them, I said, well, here's the funny thing. It's a lot of writing and prep work the actual recording the raw recording is going to take up maybe about 10 percent of this class the rest is going to be the editing and the writing and the preparing and all that other stuff that you have to do and people seem kind of surprised by that but yeah now that you mm-hmm. yeah and i never thought about about ventriloquism until you just mentioned it. I'm like oh yeah now that i think about it it's these are characters you have to write like you would if you were a novelist or a screenwriter or, or anything else mm-hmm. so mm-hmm. how many uh dolls are actually in the collection currently well, it's, it's interesting. Number 1,000, Jeff Dunham donated an Ahmed uh, ventriloquist dummy. Uh, that just came in uh, two days ago. So that's 1,000, and then I got three more today. So I'm up to 1,003. <laughs> and where do these come from? Are these people that have performed, like they're, they're regional performers? They may be performing on a cruise ship. They say, hey, I'm retiring, and I want to send my doll to a good home or is it is there something unique about them is it like maybe like me they had a danny o'day toy but they held on to theirs and this is from the sears catalog in 1972 and i still right it is all of those it is all of those i never know the story till i get the dummy so the three that came today were part of an estate uh for ventriloquist who passed away last year and his widow wanted he wanted them all to come here he was very familiar with the museum and so she's just meeting his wishes by sending his ventriloquism items here I get them when um, people are switching characters. Let's say you're a paraprofessional and you're doing ventriloquism for a while, and then you're successful enough that you want to get a better dummy. So people will donate oh. their, you know, their intro dummy or the toy that they had when they were a kid before they got started. Like for example, with Jeff again, we have his uh, one of his first professional dummies here, and I love to show it to people because it's nowhere near as attractive as any of his characters today. But he used it for a long, long time. And again, going back to that, one of the things I stress as an educator is that all of these things take have a growth pattern to them. And so I like to show one of Jeff's earlier dummies so people get an idea that he wasn't always this Jeff Dunham. He has been he had to learn like everybody else. So uh, we get him that way. We get oh, we do get people say, hey, I had this growing up. I don't want to throw it out, but I don't want to keep it either. And what can I do with it? So we get him that way. We get, uh, let's see what else. I've had several show up on my porch that just said, can I live here? So that's kind of fun. <laughs> um, let's see what else. People will go to a, you know, out to the Florence Antique Mall and they might see one and buy it and donate it. 
Now, when Mr. Berger was alive, he actively sought them out. He wrote um, and received letters to over 6,000 people and businesses while he was alive and all around the world trying to acquire them. He would start correspondence with a ventriloquist by sending them a signed photo of himself, introducing himself and saying where he had heard of them, whether it was by a person or television or radio or whatever. And he would invite them to send him a signed photograph back. And then he would engage with that person saying, hey, I'd like to buy your dummies or do you have anything retired or when, when that you've retired or when you retire from performing and initiate all of that type of stuff. So he actively pursued acquisitions. And today we do not. We do not actively pursue them. People want to be represented here. And so we get about 20 to 25 a year without soliciting for any of them. Oh, wow. And that is a lot of growth for us. And, you know, I'm I'm very glad that people choose Bent Haven, that they don't necessarily, they don't want to sell the dummy. Some of them do, don't get me wrong, but that people want to be remembered here or they want their relative remembered here. That's interesting. Um, you know, are there other ventriloquism museums that they could go to? Because I know there's like, there's different hockey museums, there's different football museums, or is, is Bent Haven really like the ventriloquist museum? We're it in the world. We're the only museum with um, okay. the specific mission of preserving the art and history of ventriloquism. Now, there are several uh, private collectors, many private collectors, uh, some with very substantial collections, but there is no museum. Now, there, the Puppetry Museum down in Atlanta, I believe they have some ventriloquism dummies, but theirs, you know, their mission is, is much broader than ours. Ours is for ventriloquism specifically, where theirs okay. is a wider a bigger umbrella with regard to puppetry in general. Okay. And I was going to say, speaking of skill sets you have to have, particularly in Jeff's case, and I'm not sure if this is true of Terry's case, but I reckon it is, you also have to know how to build uh, dolls because Jeff builds his own. Yes, but he's the exception and not the rule. Okay. Oh, really? Okay. Yes. Uh, Terry would never make his. Nobody nobody makes their own except for a handful of people throughout uh, so, ventriloquism history. So Jeff, how does Terry get his? Is he – because – I mean, he he gets them made by various figure makers, uh-huh. and he what he will do is get a unique character made. Now, like for example, his Louis Armstrong that's mass produced. You could buy that. Okay. Uh, so there are some of his characters that when he was getting started, he bought from um, a, a business called Axel Expressions, who makes a small or makes the soft figures, the vinyl kind of figures, and so he worked with them for years. And then when he made it big, he they he started getting custom versions of his characters made so they couldn't be duplicated. It could be copyrighted. But That's when he started out, yeah. there was nothing, you know, nothing unique about his puppets. Uh, Jeff had a Mortimer Snurd doll when he was a kid that anybody could get out of the Sears catalog and then moved up the Monty that he had, the one that we have here from when he was a young man. That was, um, he got that in a contest here at one of our conventions. So there was nothing special about it. Oh, Wait, I'm thinking I'm confusing two of his dummies. The one he got for most deserving ventriloquist was nothing special, but then Monty, he did have it custom made. <laughs> okay. So, did they all pretty but, much work? Just makes his own. It that way he doesn't have to deal with copyright. Okay, interesting. And two other thoughts I just had with Terry if, uh, and Jeff is, of course, Terry has an extra skill of he also does not just made up voices, but he does impressions as well, and uh, he, he's really good at those. And then um, do they all the Puppets work essentially the same way. I remember my Danny O'Day, I think you put your hand up his back of his tuxedo and he had like a little string. But are there, because 
because some are more complicated. You know, that you, eyebrows move. I know on, uh, I think on Mortimer's eyebrows would move. Is it a, a certain different mechanical setup that allows that to happen? Or Yes. So with puppets, with a standard puppet, the hand is the mouth. You put it in like a sock puppet and your hand is operating the mouth. And that's the most simple that you can get. Then you move into some of the toys. The Danny O'Day that you have very likely had is, had a string coming out the back of the neck. Yep. And you would pull the string, and then that would open and close the mouth. Correct. So that's also con- just, that's just a toy, mass-produced dummy. They're, they're collectible. I'm not saying that, but I'm just saying that they were mass-produced. There's nothing particularly unique about them or anything like that. Then you move into the the standardized ventriloquist dummy, which is the back of the body is actually open, and you put your hand into the body with a very long, uh, what's called a head stick in there, and you move the head by holding on to the head stick, and then levers and sometimes knobs or rings or things that would then allow you to uh, animate the dummy's mouth, uh-huh. upper lip, uh, move its eyes, cause it to wink, blink, spit, smoke, whatever you want it to do. So, and you're right, complexity can go all the way up to our most complex dunny has 14 things it can do. Holy cow. So, yeah, so most dunnies, uh, well, all dunnies, the mouth moves. And then it's very, very common for eyes to move left and right. And then it's also very common for them to have a winker built in so it can wink. Um, after you get past that, then you're talking about a pretty expensive custom-made piece. Now, with the... It doesn't matter though. It's, it's, if you're a great driver, it doesn't matter if you're driving a Volkswagen or a Mercedes, you're a great driver. So great ventriloquists can have very, very similar, simple dummies. And like, for example, with Jeff, with Walter, Walter's only features are the moving mouth, the lower jaw, and then the eyebrows. That's it. Everything else that Jeff is doing to create that illusion of light is based on his ability to tip the dummy's head, to have him react. There's so much life there for so few mechanics. And sometimes people think that they need a complicated dummy in order to bring it to life, and that's just absolutely false. So it's almost like sometimes like giving a kid, a 16-year-old kid, a Maserati. They don't know what to do with that, and it's not a good choice. So I, there are people who are, you know, just they're adequate ventriloquists, but then they, they purchase or use a dummy that is, they think they're going to be better because they have a complex dummy. And that's just that's just not true. And a lot of times they put a lot of money into one of these custom pieces, and then they end up just using the mouth on it anyway. Um, so I, it's it's interesting that people think they need a high end dummy to be great, and that's just not true. Jeff Walter, like I said, he makes them, and they're gorgeous, and they've got all the wrinkles in the face. And Walters are we have a Walter here that he used for I think eight years, but they're gorgeous pieces, but mechanically incredibly simple. So he's kind of, he's swapped Walters out. There's like more than one Walters and more than one Peanut. There's more than yeah, oh, more than one Peanut for sure. Soft figures wear out from the inside out. Uh, so with your hand up in there, you're going to have the sweat and the salt from your sweat that's going to on the soft figures it wears all that fabric out. So he I don't know how long uh, one of the Peanuts would last for him, but yeah, he's got lots and lots of those. Um, we have one here that, that he retired, and then the Walter we have. Um, he used in the Hertz Rent-A-Car commercial oh, um, yeah. years ago. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, so they needed it to be small in order to fit the camera angle to go through the window of the car. Oh. So he had to finish out a dummy in just a weekend in wow. order to have that shot be correct. It's a great story. Um, and 
but so then he used that Walter. He finished it out and he, and he then he used it, I think, for eight years. But by that time, he was, his audiences were growing. He wasn't in the little intimate places anymore with 200 people or 300 people. He was starting to sell out, you know, thousands of people at a time. So the Walter that we have is actually, I think he said maybe 30% smaller than the one that he uses now. He's, in order to, for people to see as he was growing, you know, he needed a piece that was more visible from, you know, farther away. Now, he does use a jumbotron now and all of that, because there's no way to see when you're in a 16,000 seat arena, but, um, but still he, he uses a large Walter. And similarly, I assume Terry Fader has that same issue playing that big room in Vegas. And when he goes out on the road, he's playing big rooms too. He's not playing small clubs. Um, right. And he mostly, I don't know that Terry has, maybe the crash test dummy might be the only one he has that's a traditional figure. I think he primarily uses soft figures. I'm trying to think, I'm sure there's a counter example that I'm forgetting, but most of his dummies are the soft type. Is there any bigger reason to use those, or that just the whatever the ventriloquist feels like is best for the character? It, it, it's personal choice. It's definitely what they're drawn to. Um, not many people mix types. It seems to me most people favor one or the other. I mean, Jeff Jeff is different in that he favors he has both. But um, the you know the the wooden ones are they're very traditional. Uh, a lot of times when people work with children, they'll prefer the soft ones because there's so much, if a child comes up and squeezes it or whatever, it's not going to harm it as much as if they get their fingerprints on, you know, these nicer carved pieces. The soft figures are a little bit less expensive depending on what, you know, how you get it, but then they are much easily, much easier to transport. They don't require a special case or anything like that in order to take care of them. But they, like I said, with Peanut, the Jeff, they, they wear out. Um, you can, there's nothing really you can do about that. They're going to wear out from the inside out. That makes sense. Um, because I guess people's, you know, musical in- instruments uh, wear out. I know my, my favorite mm-hmm. band had to go, when they decided to get back together, they uh, had to go back and buy all their old equipment because a lot of it had just uh, given out over the years completely. Is that so, right? Yeah, no, orchestral, orchestral maneuvers in the dark. Oh, well, orchestral maneuvers in the dark, and, and the Beach Boys, one and two, uh, depending on too many we listen to last. But I remember telling the OMD telling that story. They had to go on eBay and buy a lot of their old equipment because they wanted to put those into computers so they would have those sounds again. Uh, Is that right? Yeah, yeah. So all the stuff that they had. In fact, I just saw an interview with him um, a couple of weeks ago that the guy that runs the Facebook fan page did with him, the with the main uh, the lead singer. And he said, yeah, the, we have every sound now in the computer, so we don't need the keyboards anymore. The only one we don't have is our first core keyboard, which was a piece of junk. <laughs> so, but I guess that's right. If you're, if you're an artist and you're doing something that requires, you know, to have some an instrument or something like that, I guess it, it is going to wear out eventually, especially with traveling mm-hmm. and all that. So have you ever had a notion to try ventriloquism, or are you just a fan? Uh, no, it's... it's um it's very interesting with our founder. He made the museum and nonprofit organization while he was alive, and then he was the first president for nine years, the last nine years of his life. And in that time, he had plenty of time to reflect on what would ruin a place like this. And one of the things, that, and it makes total sense if you think about it, he did not want a ventriloquist to work here. And he wants, basically, the curator is the guardian. I take care of the pieces, I clean them, I do mechanical demonstrations, but I do not animate them and I am not a ventriloquist. Okay. If you if you go back to that musical instrument metaphor and you think, okay, let's just say that this is the guitar museum, you know, this everybody comes here and I've got, let's say, uh, uh, Chuck Berry's guitar. And I already know how to play guitar. Do you really think I'm not going to play that? 
<laughs> right? That's a good point. Yeah, yeah. So it, it was a way to protect the collection from a conflict of interest. So I, um, I clean the dummies. I, you know, when people say, oh, what does this one do? I do mechanical demonstrations of how they work, but I don't voice them. I don't animate them. They will remain silent because the person who did their voice is not here. Now, for some of the living ventriloquists who've donated, if they, you know, like if Jeff is here, will we let him get his Walter out? Yes, we do let him do that because okay. it's fine. If that is his piece, it is his voice. Uh, so we still do that kind of thing if we're going to do, let's say, a, a commercial for, a, a, you know, an event that we're doing or something. Jeff did our promo video for our fundraising. Um, so, of course, we're going to do that. But in general, they are here to stay, and they are here. They are museum pieces, and they are to be looked at and and uh, and loved as is. So let's get some details on the museum. Where is the museum located? I know it's in Covington, but... We are in Fort Mitchell. We oh, are Fort, in Mitchell. Fort Mitchell. Uh, okay. Yeah, so they, we're at 33 West Maple Avenue in Fort Mitchell in a residential area. We are still on the original site. Uh, we are at the founder's house. Oh, okay. And while he was collecting, he first uh, renovated his one-car garage and did an add-on there and brought the first hundred or so out into that space. And then in 1962, he built another little building. The year after he passed, another little building was built. So there's there's three buildings that tourists go through right now uh, to see the dummies. And it's a really cute little location, but we're very small. The collection is huge, but our location is small. So we are actually building a new facility. In the, We're going to close August 31st for tours this year, and we will be in construction this fall and winter and spring and open on time, hopefully May 1st. So I was going to say, is it like a deal where like a lot of museums, most of the collection is not on display, only a small percentage is, and it gets rotated in and out? You guys work the same way, I suppose? Oh, well, we do have something stored, but that wasn't how the founder did it, how Mr. Berger did it, so... We have mixed feelings about that. We, we've tried to keep it, keep his spirit alive here. We don't want to erase the fact that this was a personal collection. And he did all kinds of things that you know, were like, okay, Mr. Berger, it's your stuff. You can do what you want. But um, he kept everything out. Now, we don't have the space for that. And we have so many duplicates of certain things, like your Danny O'Day doll. We have about 20 of those. Okay. So would we want another one? Yes, we would absolutely want it because we would want the story that goes with it. Uh-huh. Um, but do we put all examples of Danny O'Day out? No, we don't have the space for that. So gotcha. um, we have out of the thousand dummies here, I think about 850 are on display. And then the ones that are not on display are usually in such bad condition that we can't trust it to fit well. You know, the the pieces of the head have actually come unscrewed or they need to be re-glued or whatever, or it's a duplicate piece like a mass-produced toy. Okay. And so you're saying you're going to have a whole new building, a uh, bigger building yes. on the same site? Yes. Or it's going to be somewhere been, else? I'm so excited. We've been raising money for four years. Yes, it will be here on site. Okay. And um, we, if you come to see the museum, it's, it's a joke that we say it. We don't have any elbow room here. The dummies' elbows are all touching each other. So, huh. ha, ha, ha. Um, but there's, it's so crowded that we can't do any programming inside. All of our programming is done outside, which has really prevented us from getting a lot of local grant support. So the new building will have a programming space where we can do um, 
stagecraft and we can have small shows. We can do puppet making. We can do ventriloquism lessons. We can watch the old vent movies and all kinds of stuff. So there will be a space specifically dedicated. Actually, that's the space that Jeff and Audrey Dunham uh, sponsored in the new museum at the Jeff and Audrey Dunham Center. So oh, nice. we will be... Um, so we're going to have that space, which will enable us to reach an even broader uh, demographic than we already reach. And then, yeah, we'll be able to expand some of these exhibits because right now when people come, they see dummy after dummy after dummy, and they see all of these photographs. But the truth is that each of these dummies has a huge story behind it. They may have come in with extra outfits or with posters or with recordings and or playbills or scripts. And we want to be able to, for the tourists to see that there's more to the piece than the piece itself. The, the story behind it is what makes it great. So, so what, I'm looking forward to that. That sounds like it's going to be uh, fantastic. So until August 30th, when can folks visit? Every tour is by appointment. We don't have regular hours because I am the only museum employee. Okay. Okay. Um, but, and it sounds lady to You have to have an appointment, but the truth is it's, you know, it just has to be... Sure. I just have to be here. So um, people call or they could call me or they can email me at curator at venhaven.org and I set them up for a tour. The tours are all guided and they can be, I, I take individuals through up through bus tours. So it's okay. um, any size group is welcome to come. We're donation based and we ask for $10 per person for the tour, but we don't let financial hardship prevent anyone from coming. So like I said, we're just donation based. We are having, I don't know, what, what's your air date for this piece? This will run uh, two weeks from two days ago, so a week from this okay, upcoming so Wednesday. Well, we're having, a, for your personal information, and I guess we'll cut this part out, but we're having an open house this Sunday from okay. 2 to 5. Okay. And then, um, and we are having a, um, we're having a 5K that's going to be happening as a fundraiser. We're having that come up June 27th. It doesn't sound like with your broadcast schedule that would work out to promote either one of those with okay. you directly. Okay. But, um, but yeah, so tours are very simple to get, uh, usually two or three days in advance. People want to be able to come on the same day, but um, that hardly ever works out because I usually am scheduled out about four or five days in advance. Oh, okay. And social media? I know you have a website, but social media, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, any of those? Yes, we have. Uh, my, my greatest presence is probably on Facebook, but I have a Twitter and I have Instagram as well. Instagram, I think, is uh, Van Haven Curator. And Twitter, that's my Twitter handle. I think it's I think it's Ben Haven Curator also. But okay. then the Facebook page is Ben Haven Museum. Right. And our last order of business, uh, again, I don't know if you've listened to the show before, but as the guest, you get to pick our coupon code that'll be good for listeners for the next week that this uh, podcast is uh, new. So the, when the following episode comes on, the, this discount code will no, no longer be good, but it's good for a week. And uh, to take 20% off your CincyShirts.com or OldSchoolShirts.com order or use it in one of our two stores. Uh, so what would, Lisa, what would you like the um, coupon code to be for this episode? What would I like it to be? Yeah. It could be a little of a, a small phrase. It could be a single word. What would you like it to be? Mm-hmm. I think a good coupon code would be, uh, I'm going to go with, well, you were a Bergen fan, but I don't want to use Charlie. So I'm going to go with, uh, how about let's go with Danny O'Day. Danny O'Day. All right. No apostrophe, folks. It'll be all one word. Danny O'Day with no apostrophe in the O. So that'll make it easy on you. So that's a great one. Yeah. Uh, bring back some good memories there. Well, terrific. Well, I appreciate you doing this and um, look forward to uh, the, the big new improved facility uh, coming along. And again, people can 
like we said, folks can contact you and get a tour arranged as well. And uh, continuing success then uh, in the ventriloquism museum business. Well, thank you so much. I really appreciate uh, you taking the time to talk with me today. I always love talking about Venhaven. Great. I learned a lot. It was really it was very uh, interesting. And uh, thanks again, Lisa. Okay, thank you. All right, bye-bye. Bye-bye. Lisa Sweezy, I'm not sure if we've used this police song before as a playout song, but I think we have. But it always reminds me of how much I like the police. <laughs> uh, and one of the few groups I think where like all of their albums are equally good to the other albums. Like there's no there's no low spots in the catalog there. Oh, they only did they did five of them and they got out, so maybe that's what helped. I don't know. But that's from the album Gentleman Dada. Check that out. That's their favorite album of theirs, by the way. And uh, good choice. I prefer Ghost in the Machine. But back to ventriloquism. You can check out the Van Haven Museum. Just Google Van Haven Museum. You can find all kinds of articles and YouTube videos and their website, obviously. And like she said, they're on Facebook and Instagram and Twitter and all that fun stuff as well. So you can arrange a visit there and check it out. Now, if there's someone you'd like to hear on the show, simply email podcast at cincyshirts.com, put podcast guest in the subject line and tell us a little bit about the person you would like us to have on the show. Or if it's you, tell us, you know, why you would be an interesting guest for the Cincy Shirts podcast. Be sure to tell friends and loved ones about the show, including folks who may no longer live in the area, but still feel connected to the tri-state. And if you haven't already, as always, check out those Cincy Shirts podcast archives, 175 great episodes back there. Not a dud in the lot as far as I'm concerned. Today's show is produced by me with all from Josh and Darren. Our theme music is Cincinnati by Big Nothing There from Philadelphia. Still trying to get that guy on the show, by the way. I think now that the pandemic is winding down, uh, he may be keen. He was kind of depressed about the whole uh, the whole thing and, you know, not being able to play out because, you know, he's in a band. He wants to play live. So uh, he wasn't really up to it uh, back last year when I first approached him. But maybe we can get him on. He can discuss the song and so forth. Uh, so anyway, find their music in iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you get your music. Find vintage tees from great places like Boston, Phoenix, Pittsburgh, Cleveland, Louisville, Seattle, Philadelphia, and more at oldschoolshirts.com. Over oh, three dozen cities now there with lots of defunct sports teams and uh, malls and restaurants and rock clubs and all that kind of stuff. Uh, just like Cincy shirts, but for those towns. And again, the promo code for this episode is Danny O'Day. That is all one word. There's no apostrophe in O'Day. It's just Danny O'Day. You can do it all lowercase, all uppercase. That part does not matter. Uh, you can use that to get 20% off your entire CincyShirts.com or OldSchoolShirts.com order. Or you can go into our brick and mortar stores, as we say, uh, Hyde Park and over the Rhine, that is, and say, I'd like to use the podcast code Danny O'Day, and they'll take 20% off your order, including, in OTR, the print-on-demand shirts. You can take 20% off of those as well. Follow our social channels, Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and Snapchat for the latest Cincy Shirts news. Tell your friends about the show. Give us a good review wherever you get the podcast from. And as always, download or stream us next time. Bye.
I wish I said goodbye. I wish I said goodbye.